Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, welcome to First Move. I'm Julia Chasley in New York. And global markets may have started the third quarter feeling a little stronger But it does look like some U.S. investors are extending their 4th of July holiday. They decided to stay in bed, perhaps. We're on track, as you can see there. Look for a lackluster start on Wall Street with U.S. futures lower by more than 1% amid intensifying pricing pressures and fears of a potential coming recession. That concern only exacerbated by what we're seeing in Europe. Take a look at that. As you can see, stocks under some serious pressure today. The catalyst Well, it's energy workers in Norway that have decided to strike. And we're talking about Western Europe's number one oil and gas producer. That strike set to take a big chunk out of Norway's gas output this week. It's normally around 20 to 25 percent of the EU and UK's natural gas that gets bought from Norway. We're going to have all the details coming up, but it comes at a highly fragile time with the EU already facing the threat of Russia abruptly turning off supplies and potentially plunging vital industries into crisis. And it's not the only strike causing disruption at this moment, too. SAS shares falling, as you can see there, more than 9% after the Scandinavian airline filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the United States. A walkout by pilots forced it to cancel hundreds of flights this Tuesday alone. We've got all the details on that coming up shortly, too, and the context. Meanwhile, let me give you a look at what we're seeing in the Asia session once again. Markets closing. Well, it's a mixed bag, slightly lower there for the Shanghai, the Nikkei, though managing to eke out some gains. The Wall Street Journal, however, is reporting that the Biden administration may lift some tariffs on Chinese goods as soon as this week. And that is where we begin the drivers. So let's get cracking. A constructive dialogue with the United States. That's what China says after its vice premier held a virtual meeting with U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Beijing says it expressed concerns over U.S. tariffs. Selena Wang joins us now. Selena, at a time of slowing growth in China, but in the globe particularly, and with the ongoing kinks in the supply chains. Removing some of these barriers to trade must be helpful. The problem is, if you look at the two different readouts of this meeting, we're not quite sure what was discussed and what wasn't. So what can you tell us? Yeah, Julie, well, there were some areas of agreement, which is that this talk between Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Chinese Vice Premier Liu He was substantive and candid. Both sides also suggested that the U.S. had brought up these talks and had initiated them. The timing here, as you say, is absolutely critical. It comes as there are growing reports that the U.S. may roll back some of those Trump-era tariffs on Chinese goods as early as this week. Now, the Chinese side said they had discussed the issues and concerns around the tariffs on their goods. Now, the U.S. side did not mention tariffs, but said that Janet Yellen had brought up some issues, including the impact of Russia's war on Ukraine on the global economy and what the U.S. side had called China's unfair trade practices. Now, while the Biden administration has reversed a number of Trump-era policies, so far the tariffs on some $350 billion worth of Chinese goods, will they still remain? After Trump had 
put in place several rounds of those tariffs, while China also issued its own retaliatory tariffs on some American-made goods. Now, a truce was reached in 2020, but trade tensions have remained extremely high, and China so far actually hasn't lived up to its purchasing promises. It has only purchased about 57 percent of U.S. exports that it had committed to purchasing by the end of 2021, Julia. Okay, so as you quite rightly said, these were Trump-era policy tariffs. The Biden administration then came in and decided not to remove them. So clearly saw a reason to have them in the first place. I saw that Barclays was saying in a note that a tariff rollback would lead to a max 0.3% drop in, in U.S. inflation. So if that's one of the reasons for doing this, then the bang for the buck isn't that big. Is that what it comes down to? What is the disagreement behind whether or not the U.S. should lift these tariffs, Selena? Well, as you say, there is a lot of disagreement on what the impact of a possible rollback would be, if it should be done, if it should not be done. The struggle here is trying to reduce inflation while also trying to keep that economic pressure on Beijing. And we've seen that within the U.S. administration, there is this fair amount of disagreement. Janet Yellen has said before that she thinks these tariffs are a drag on the economy. On the other hand, you've got U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, who has said that these tariffs are critical of critical importance to keep that leverage on Beijing. And also, we had Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo recently tell CNN the following. She said this about tariffs, quote, steel and aluminum. We've decided to keep some of those tariffs because we need to protect American workers and we need to protect our steel industry. It's a matter of national security. There are other products, household goods, bicycles. It may make sense. Now, to your point, some analysts say that scrapping these tariffs would have a marginal impact on inflation. You mentioned that Barclays report. Well, also the Peterson Institute of International Economics, they say that removing tariffs on Chinese imports would only lower consumer price index inflation by 0.26 percentage points. This would be initially. And also appears so far that these tariffs have not really achieved their goal of rebalancing the U.S.-China trade relationship. They haven't really impacted China's exports, even as China's economy was being hammered by the COVID lockdowns earlier this year. Well, take a listen to this data. Exports to the U.S. in the first five months of 2022 still grew more than 15 percent from a year earlier. Oh. It's fascinating, isn't it? If the reason for doing this is simply to look like you're doing something, then as we were saying, the impact actually on inflation is going to be minimal, according to some of these estimates. But did they achieve the purpose that they set out to do in the first place? We can debate and we'll be here for several months. Selena, great job. Thank you. (laughs) Selena Wang there. Okay, to Europe now. The price of natural gas is spiking to a four-month high as Norway's offshore energy workers stage a series of strikes over pay. Claire Sebastian joins us now on this, Claire. Many angles to this story, too. Let's hone in on the strikes themselves and what workers are saying. And they're in an industry that's making bumper profits. They see prices rising. But the cost of living for these workers is soaring, too. And they're saying, hang on a second, we want an adjustment that reflects that, too. That's the starting point for this story. Yeah, that's exactly it. The strike is over pay, Julia. This is just one of the unions that are operating uh, in Norway's oil and gas industry that is doing this. The Norwegian Oil and Gas Association says the rest, about 85% of workers, have agreed contracts. 
but it's still going to be very disruptive. The union is the Norwegian organization of managers and executives, and their plan is to gradually escalate strikes throughout the week. So Tuesday today, the the, the smallest of all the strikes, that is set to affect about 1% of Norwegian daily gas production. Tomorrow, Wednesday, we're set to see another strike. That could then affect about 13% of Norwegian daily gas production. And then on Saturday, they are, they are expected to escalate even further with a strike that could affect 56% of Norwegian daily gas production. So that's not only the production offline, that's then revenue that's impacted, extremely disruptive uh, to Norway. And the fear is, of course, that if they don't resolve this, this dispute, and the Norwegian Oil and Gas Association is saying that they actually can't change the contract that they have with these workers, then this could continue spiking uh, gas prices in Europe even further and coming, of course, at an extremely inconvenient time for Europe as a whole, which is already dealing with disruptions uh, caused by Russia. Yeah, and we should talk about that, of course, too, because very painful for Norway, having pushed and negotiated for more contracts with European nations to increase their reliance on the nations. And now they're turning around and saying, guys, we're not necessarily going to be able to provide what we've promised. Mm. The backdrop, of course, Claire, is, is material here, whether it's the threat of Russia switching off gas supplies to, to Europe. Mm. And we know that's a, a viable threat potentially. But there's other issues, of course, too, that we can bring in. Yeah, Nord so Stream. Norway yeah, Norway is extremely material to Europe and increasingly so, of course, because it, it's not just that Europe is trying to reduce its reliance on Russia, it's that, it's that Russia is also using its leverage uh, in terms of its gas supplies. Uh, at the moment, Russia is saying that technical issues have dramatically brought down the supplies from the Nord Stream pipeline, one of the key pipelines in Europe. That's pumping at about a third uh, of its previous capacity at the moment. It's also set to go offline next week, Julia, uh, for about 10 days for planned maintenance. Uh, we've also got a disruption when it comes to LNG liquefied natural gas uh, that Europe is importing uh, from the U.S. in increasing quantities. One of the main suppliers of LNG uh, is now going to be offline completely until uh, at least October. So all of this together is extremely disruptive. Uh, And Norway was already a a very key supplier. Take a look at in 2020, it was the third biggest supplier of oil uh, to the EU. uh, And also in 2020, it was the second biggest supplier uh, of natural gas to the EU. So clearly very disruptive. And it's a reputational damage as you say, uh, to Norway. This is something that the Norwegian Oil and Gas Association pointed out today. This is the last thing that they wanted as well. Yeah, trust, critical. Claire Sebastian, thank you. Okay, let's move on. Scandinavian airline SAS filing for bankruptcy protection in the United States. This after pay talks with its pilots fell apart on Monday. It comes amid an already chaotic travel season for holidaymakers in Europe and beyond. Anna Stewart joins us now with more. Anna, there'll be a lot of people going, hang on a second, a Scandinavian airline filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy (laughs) in the United States. Critical to understand what Chapter 11 allows you to continue to do. Explain continue to do operations as usual. Mm. And this is certainly not the first and it won't be the last um, even international airline to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the US. I think it was uh, Aeromexico and Latam Airlines in the last couple of years. But this airline, let's be fair, I mean, they're saying that the um, the strikes that are ongoing from pilots have really pushed them to this point. But that's just been the latest pressure. This was an airline that's been in a lot of trouble uh, for many years, even actually before the pandemic. Now, this strike is expected, according to a Sidbank analyst we were speaking to today, to cost the airline around $10 million a day. This is SAS pilot striking. But before the pandemic, they were struggling with lots of uh, competition from low-cost carriers. Then the pandemic loaded it with debt. 
Now, like many airlines, they're facing some really high costs when you're looking at jet fuel, which has skyrocketed. Or for this airline in particular, actually, the cost of leased planes, many of which are just standing idle due to the closure of Russian airspace, which, of course, uh, this airline used a lot. They're also struggling with labour, not just in terms of wages, which, of course, pilots are very upset about, but also in terms of hiring. So many airlines let staff go. They had huge cuts during the pandemic. And actually, one of the big upsets from this strike from pilots is the fact that they've hired back pilots, but from agency staff rather than the ones that they let go originally. What's really, though, I think pushed them to this point in recent months, the tipping point, perhaps, was one of their main stakeholders, which is the, the Swedish government refusing to bail them out. Now, Sweden and Denmark both have a 21.8% stake in this airline. Denmark said they would be interested in increasing their stake, but only as part of a broader restructure. So here we are. Here we are. Swedish government won't help. Go to the US government and use their laws and legal procedures to declare bankruptcy. Hmm. And very quickly for consumers, for people perhaps that have booked flights on this airline and are watching, Mm. what do they need to know? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, mm. In terms of the chapter 11, that will make no difference in terms of the operations. But of course, we're looking at huge strikes. And yesterday, SAS said that around 50% of flights would be cancelled yesterday, impacting 30,000 passengers. So that is huge. Today, actually, I was looking at data from, uh, I think it was Flight Aware. They said around 80% of flights were cancelled today. And this strike is not yet resolved. So for people booked on holidays uh, with SAS for the coming summer, You may want to look at alternatives, but SAS should, of course, try and find you an alternative if they cancel your flight. Julia? Yes. Anna Stewart, thank you. Now, not just Europe. Major turbulence at U.S. airports over the holiday weekend, too. The 4th of July, bad weather and staff shortages, as we were just discussing there, creating a perfect storm, leading to thousands of flight delays or cancelled. Pete Montine joins us from Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. Pete, great to have you with us. Although I have to say, I read this weekend that many people were saying, look, this could have been worse. How bad was it? You know, it's not nearly as bad as it could have been, Julia. Remember, airlines were anticipating big cancellations. Also, the federal government was as well. We'll get to that in a second. Look at the cancellation numbers, according to FlightAware. More than 2,200 flights canceled nationwide here in the U.S. from Thursday to Sunday. They really peaked on Saturday, but let's put this into context. This is about half as bad as the previous weekend before the holiday weekend. That is a huge win for the airlines. Remember, they were under this pressure from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg to get their acts together for the long July 4th holiday weekend. It's also a huge win for passengers. More than 11 million people passed through security at America's airports over the five-day holiday travel period. That number was really high on Friday, 2.49 million people screened by TSA, the highest number we have seen since February 11, 20. 20. We've not seen numbers this high in the pandemic. It's also a really big win for workers. I want you to listen now to Sarah Nelson of the Association of Flight Attendants. She says when these massive cancellations happen, often pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, mechanics are really caught in the middle of all of this. Oftentimes, crews are waiting for one, two, three, four hours to get in touch with the crew scheduler. That means if we're not getting our next assignment, we're timing out. And, and so we're very frustrated with the airlines on the back end on operational support during this time, too. Remember, airlines got a lot smaller over the pandemic in terms of planes and pilots. 
When summer weather really comes into the mix, that's what creates the bad cocktail for the airlines and really causes this house of cards to come tumbling down. There's really no slack in the system anymore, Julia. We are not totally out of the woods just yet. There could be bad weather across the United States today. We will see as this unfolds, especially throughout the summer. The airlines haven't hired near as many people as they need to, and they're still scrambling to do so. Yeah, and that says it all. There is no slack in the system, so the slightest problem and, and chaos ensues, and it's a, a perfect storm, as we mentioned. Pete, great to have you with us. Pete Montine there. Now, from planes to trains, and there's a sudden surge in demand across the English Channel for the Eurostar rail service that connects Britain and France. The CEO told Arninosos Santos how their services have re-emerged from dark times during the pandemic. At the beginning of the year, uh, with the Omicron crisis, we were again almost at zero. In 15 months, we have just got 5% of our, uh, of our ridership normal. So the ridership was divided by 20. And now, so just in a couple of months' time, we are uh, about 80% of our pre-pandemic uh, 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 business and ridership. Uh, so it, it's very, the ramp up has been very, very uh, quick, and you see, and there is an appetite for travelling, and even this summer, so the appetite is almost 100% of the pre-pandemic figures. And with this return to interest in travel and the summer holiday season now kicking off, are you finding it hard or easy to attract and retain talent? Because obviously inflation is very high. Many CEOs are kept up at night thinking my staff might want an inflation-type pay rise. Yes, so attracting talent, of course, is something which is absolutely key for our business. You see, well, Eurostar, even if it has gone through a very tough crisis because of those uh, uh, figures, uh, the ridership divided by 20 for 15 months in average. But despite that, well, the brand is absolutely uh, uh, terrific. And so it's so well known that there is a real attraction for going back to this Eurostar business. So, uh, yes, we've gone through a very tough time, but well, uh, the business is starting again and attracting talents is, of course, possible. And we do that as much as we can. OK, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories now making headlines around the world. In the U.S. state of Illinois, at least six people were killed and dozens injured on Monday when a gunman opened fire at a Fourth of July parade. It happened in a suburb of Chicago. Police have taken a man into custody. They say the shooter used a high-powered rifle. CNN's Josh Campbell is in Highland Park for us now. Josh, this should have been a day of great patriotism, celebration for families, instead of which many there are now in mourning. What more do we know? That's right. This parade here celebrating the independence of the United States, one of many parades that were going on across this country, rocked by gunfire. Witnesses describing the scene behind me as a battlefield. And that is because authorities believe that a suspect in his early 20s came here to this area, was on a rooftop of a building behind me in a sniper type position, opening fire on the crowd. Now we saw a video of hundreds of people fleeing uh, to safety. Authorities uh, eventually recovered a rifle on the roof of one of 
of those buildings. They described it as a high-powered rifle. Of course, in so many of the mass shootings that we've seen across the country, this is the weapon of choice for so many of these shooters, a weapon that can shoot uh, rapidly, a quick number of rounds, uh, obviously uh, a quick uh, large amount of victims as well. Six people were killed in this attack, dozens injured. Now, after this attack, Julia, police didn't know exactly who they were dealing with. Eventually, they did put out a description of the suspect's vehicle, eventually uh, the suspect's photograph as well. It was a uh, police officer who was about five miles from where I'm standing uh, who eventually located the suspect. We're told that he was taken into custody without incident. I was actually here at the crime scene. We saw police flooding out. I traveled down uh, behind the SWAT team. We saw them quickly arrive, uh, process that scene. They didn't know if that vehicle had any type of explosives or anything like that in it, so they took some time to actually go through. But again, the suspect now taken into custody. Uh, we are waiting to hear what those potential charges will be against, against six people uh, were killed. And then finally, the more we're learning about the suspect, we're learning of potential warning signs. Uh, we are hearing from sources that the suspect had a, a very robust online presence, including posting audio and video. In one post, you see this animation of a figure that resembles the shooter himself conducting an attack, as well as some uh, very ominous writing about wanting to conduct an attack and kill people and the like. So again, those warning signs obviously very troubling. This community here now with mixed feelings are obviously uh, uh, very happy that this person has been taken into custody, that there's no longer this threat, no longer this manhunt, but obviously a community that is also in mourning. Six people dead, dozens wounded, people just coming out for a holiday parade here that again was struck by gunfire. Yes, and huge questions remain over trying to do something to uh, prevent these things happening. An ongoing conversation, Josh. Thank you. Josh Campbell there. Okay, 30 nations will soon become 32. NATO has formally begun the process of ratifying the membership of Finland and Sweden, a historic step brought on by Russia's war in Ukraine. NATO's chief saying the move will make the alliance even stronger and its people safer. So today uh, we will formally sign the protocols of accession. This marks the start of the ratification process. NATO's door remains open to European democracies who are ready to and willing to contribute to our shared security. This is a good day for Finland and Sweden and a good day for NATO. Okay, coming up here on First Move, from devastating floods in Australia to a sizzling heat dome in the United States, a look at some of the extreme weather patterns around the world. Plus, suits you. Why all these teens are dressing in suits to see the movie Minions? The answer coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Extreme weather events are displacing millions of people around the world. In Australia, 50,000 people have been warned to flee as torrential rain brings flooding to New South Wales. Meanwhile, more than a third of states in the United States are battling dangerously high temperatures while an enormous wildfire spreads in California. I'm joined now by CNN weather anchor Chad Myers. Chad, wherever we are looking in the world, and they are geographically significantly diverse, it's tough not to connect the dots. Explain what you're seeing. Yeah, significant events, thousands and thousands of kilometers apart. I mean, that, that's really what you're talking about here. Australia, obviously Sydney here. The area around Sydney had a East Coast low over the weekend. Storm came off of Brisbane, gathered steam in the warm water to the east here, and then just slammed into Sydney. 
Now, this happens about four to five times per year, but not over the city. Sometimes it's north, sometimes it's south, and you spread the rain out a little bit. Not this time, 400 millimeters in three days. And it's still raining right now. Although it's a little bit farther to the north, it's still raining significantly in the mountains, and all that water has to run back downhill. Here you go for the next couple days. It finally shuts itself off on Thursday afternoon, and the rain is done. Another 100 millimeters or so on top of what we have. That's not going to help because, obviously, we already have the rivers out of control. 1.7 meters of rainfall so far in Sydney this year since January 1st. The old record, less than that, obviously, and still more wet weather to come across Australia. Temperatures are going to be cool across Sydney. That's the good news. Not cool in the middle part of the country for the United States. Temperatures are going to approach... 44, 45 when it comes to the heat index. It's just been in the same area. Above normal temperatures have been in the same area. And people there are fatigued. They're just really tired of this. I'm going to give you one thing. You're, not, you're never going to hear this on a different newscast. But there's something out here called corn sweat. I know it sounds gross. But it's the plant evaporating moisture from the soil. The evapotranspiration increases the humidity right there in the central part, the bread basket, the corn basket of the United States, where temperatures are going to approach about 110 Fahrenheit, about 44 to 45 Celsius. And then the rain across parts of India had those mudslides up to the northern part of India up here in the northeast. Still some rain across, but this is monsoon. You expect it. You just kind of want to spread it out a little bit more than that, Julia. Yeah, Chad, thank you for tying all those things together for us. Chad Myers, thank you. Okay, more first move after the break. Stay with us. This pump smiling and cheering over at the New York Stock Exchange this morning. Welcome back to First Move. You are looking at the opening bell this Tuesday and U.S. markets are headed for a lower open despite their enthusiasm. This, of course, the first trading day after the Independence Day holiday in the United States. And it has been an ugly 2022 for investors so far. I just want to give you a bit of perspective on where U.S. stock markets are lying currently year to date. The Dow down at nearly 15 percent. The Nasdaq, the tech heavy sector, shedding almost 30 percent, as you can see in green there. Markets, of course, around the world battered by numerous concerns, a whole array of them, including Russia's war in Ukraine, COVID-19 lockdowns in China, specifically rising prices and aggressive rate hikes by central banks, all clearly connected and all factors raising the spectra of a global recession. Now, analysts at Citi say the chances of that happening are now as high as 50%. Joining us for some perspective on that is Nathan Sheets, Global Chief Economist at Citi. He's also the former Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs. Nathan, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. You know, the headlines I saw attributed to your report said, uh, City says the likelihood of recession now is a a coin flip, 50-50. I think we desperately need your perspective on that. Tell us more. I think the uh, bottom line uh, from our report is that we see appreciable recession risk in the global economy. And quite frankly, my sense is that uh, that recession risk is is rising. And uh, fundamentally, it is attributable to this very high global inflation that uh, is occurring and is manifesting itself uh, in many different places, in many different ways around the globe. And then central banks being called into action 
and central banks are responding vigorously. They learned uh, from their predecessors in previous generations that high sustained inflation is very painful for the public. It's very painful for the economy. And they're doing everything they can now to ensure that this inflation does not become entrenched. And that's the challenge to the economy is these rates are, are rising and financial markets are responding adversely as a result of that. And as you point out, there's very few places that aren't battling the higher prices and therefore central banks aren't responding. So there's no counterweight in terms of a part of the world that continues to grow and isn't having the challenge of of central bank tightening and an impact on on growth. Can you give us a sense of potential timing, Nathan? Because I do think when we keep throwing around these statistics of the likelihood of recession, we're, we're in danger also of talking consumers into it, particularly at a time when they're already facing um, a cost of living crisis in, in certain parts of the world and certainly rising energy prices. Um, is there not a danger, though, that we, we talk ourselves into it? Timing. I, I think sentiment right now is very fragile. Mm. And the risk of some kind of self-fulfilling downward adjustment in consumer spending is something that I'm, uh, I'm quite worried about. Now, at the moment, I would say the good news is that we're seeing a meaningful uh, rebalancing through the summer towards services and toward tourism and travel and restaurants. People are taking the holidays, the vacations that they postponed for the last uh, several years through the pandemic. But as we get into the fall, is it possible then we see a sharper correction uh, in, uh, in consumer spending? and recession risks rise uh, on the back of of higher inflation, cutting into real incomes and reducing purchasing power, but also, as you point out, on the back of the consumer, just kind of getting nervous about the whole uh, contours of the economic uh, situation and pulling back even more than what might be dictated by fundamentals. I think at the core of this as well is the energy markets, and you can tell me how closely you're honing in on this in some of the forecasts that you're making. Simply, we see a market reaction today that that I think is looking at the strikes in Norway and saying they're so important now to Europe. We know we're in a possible period where Russia could play even harder ball with the energy surprise that it provides to Europe. And there's also a sensitivity around what we're seeing in terms of growth slowdown in Europe. It, It has a global impact and it does in many ways emanate from energy markets wherever you are in the world, but particularly given the sensitivities and the challenges of the geopolitics in Europe in particular? The energy markets are very much at the core of this challenge. We are seeing uh, higher uh, gasoline, petroleum prices. We're seeing higher natural gas prices. Uh, Other commodities maybe have recently come off the boil a little bit, but remain historically high. And uh, the bottom line is less purchasing power for consumers. The ability to substitute away from some of that commodity intensive expenditure is low. And so that means there's less money left over for consumer discretionary. Uh, So as we think about global risks, if you could uh, present me a global outlook where uh, oil prices say, were 20 or $30 a barrel lower, 
or there was a, a significant reduction in the uh, uncertainty about gas supply for Europe. That would be an outlook where I'd say, well, maybe there's not as much uh, recession risk as I think. Mm. I'd turn that knob down. So that is a, a critical aspect of what we're watching now. Yeah. What are the other wild cards, Nathan? I want to get your perspective. Last week, we were talking to the largest private data collector in China, and they were saying we're seeing significant slowdown in services, in the manufacturing. We're not seeing the kind of stimulus that you will automatically see. Credit conditions for smaller companies in particular and some of the weaker ones are tightening quite significantly. And I just wondered from your perspective and what you're seeing, whether you're more worried about the the growth slowdown that you're seeing in China or perhaps the inflationary kicker to the rest of the world if China does see a resurgence post the lockdowns and does start to provide stimulus. And then that creates the sort of demand pull for products elsewhere in the world and perhaps contributes to the to the inflationary pulse that we're seeing, which is the greater risk here, the slowdown or the inflationary kicker. For the moment, I'm much more worried about the strength of Chinese activity. Uh, Over the last uh, couple of months, we've marked down our growth outlook for China appreciably. And now we're well below, we're at 3.9% for this year, well below their 5.5% growth target. But if we don't see more economic stimulus there, there is a meaningful risk that that uh, ultimate number may even be lower than 3.9%. We're seeing a distinct slowing in the Chinese economy. And if you took that and layered it down on the other risks that that are afoot right now, central bank tightening, inflation, energy prices, and overall uncertainty, if we had a Chinese uh, recession on top of that, uh, then I think we need to mark up those probabilities of recession uh, even more than where they are at the moment. So it's really about Chinese, the stability of the Chinese economy. So you're saying actually very quickly the risks are to the downside here, even now with your global recession call. Yeah. Nathan, great to get your perspective. Thank you. Nathan Sheets there, the Global Chief Economist at City. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Okay, so to come here on First Move, I'm speaking to the founder of space systems company Rocket Lab, providing and proving the saying to infinity and beyond isn't just for Buzz Lightyear. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move with a mission to the moon, Mars, or even an asteroid. Space company Rocket Lab is celebrating the successful launch of the Capstone satellite, part of the team working with the U.S. space agency NASA. Now, just the size of a microwave, Capstone is now headed for lunar orbit. The mission directly supports NASA's Artemis program, which, if you remember, we've spoken about on the show, and plans to return humans to the moon and pave the way for a journey to Mars. Rocket Lab played a critical role in this mission. It provided the launch for NASA, as well as designing, manufacturing and operating its lunar photon spacecraft, which powered Capstone into orbit. The launch also marked the successful completion of Rocket Lab's first mission into deep space. Now, Peter Beck is the CEO and founder of Rocket Lab, and he joins us now. Peter, I'm so excited to have you on the show, and I'm sure you're equally as enthusiastic about this, but there will be people in our audience going, what on earth just happened? So I think we need to take a step back and explain what's so unique about this launch and and what this Capstone satellite will achieve. 
fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 there's a number of really unique elements here. So, you know, the first is this is a you know, the very first, you know, beginning of the mission and, and returning to the moon. So, uh, so, so that, that's very unique in its own right. But what's also unique is that, you know, we went to the moon with a very small launch vehicle and a very small uh, spacecraft. Uh, and and that's, that's never been done before. And consequently, you know, the price tag uh, to do this was, was, you know, tens of millions of dollars, which, you know, when you consider going to the moon is, is an absurd price tag. So, you know, there's, there's really two elements. One, we, we've created a new capability to explore the moon and, and other planets and beyond. Uh, and, and this marks, you know, as you point out, the very beginning of the Artemis program and returning to the moon. Okay, so there is two separate things there. And we'll come back to the cost of this and collapsing the cost of this, which I think is important for many reasons. But I think the technology and understanding the profile of the moon orbit is going to be critical, not just for getting people back on the moon, but perhaps for the ambitions elsewhere. And I mentioned Mars and, and asteroids. Just explain that, because that's also part of, of what you've created in order to help achieve this. Yeah, so we, we created a, a, a very um, low energy way of getting to, to, the, to the moon and, and other celestial bodies. So we launch uh, the lunar photon spacecraft into a low Earth orbit and, and an elliptical orbit. And over a period of, of, of eight days, um, we, we actually use the, the Earth's gravity and uh, we do you know, subsequent burns at the perigee or the lowest part of the orbit to gain energy. And, uh, and then, you know, yesterday was uh, the TLI or translunar injection burn where we broke free of the Earth's gravitational force. So it, th- these kinds of uh, techniques and, and missions enable us to go to far places um, at, at, a, at a much lower energy and consequently a much smaller spacecraft. I love this part of it. It accelerated to more than 24,500 miles per hour to break free of the Earth's orbit. And then it went on the trajectory to the moon, which is just part of me geeking out because I love this. Okay, and this this mission cost $30 million. Just compare and contrast because there will be a lot of people going, hey, we have a lot of issues down on the ground that need solving. And this remains a lot of money. How much would this have cost without the technologies that have now been developed? I mean, prohibitive cost. Yeah, I mean, you know, $30 million. Um, you know, our part of the program was, was actually $10 million. So, you know, $10 million to, to, um, to, to launch it and uh, build, a, build a, a spacecraft and send it to the moon. Uh, and then, you know, the spacecraft itself, the capstone that we, spacecraft that we separated was about another $10 million. And then about another $10 million to, you know, to, to complete the mission. Uh, and you know, in 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 yeah, yeah, that is a significant sum of money. But in space terms, uh, that's ridiculously cheap. Um, generally, a mission to the moon would start with a billion dollar price tag, not not let alone a hundred million dollar or you know a ten million dollar price tag. So there's really you know one or two orders of magnitude lower cost um, than traditional missions. How how are you managing to keep costs down? Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's a new time, and um, you know the electron launch vehicle that we used to launch it. Um, prior to that vehicle, you know, being brought to market, if you wanted to go to to low Earth orbit in a dedicated way, it used to cost you know between fifty and seventy million dollars. Uh, now we fly um, you know the electron to a low Earth orbit for, for seven point five million dollars. It's a million order of magnitude once again, um, and and this is what you can do with uh, with with private space companies. And I think that's the you know, the, you know the, the biggest change or disruption to the industry over the last decade. 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen this. We're almost getting used to seeing uh, satellite launches and, and rocket launches now, thanks to guys like you and SpaceX. And I think it was it wouldn't be possible without the collapsing cost and, and the new technologies that we're seeing. Um, explain how this may be used for putting humans back on the moon. But also, I think the critical thing that gets people really excited is how long is it going to take before we're talking about landing men and women on an asteroid, for example? Uh, it reminds me of that movie. Uh, can't think of the name right now. Or, or Mars. How long before we're doing that? Armageddon. There you go. In my ear. Yeah, well, That's what we like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, th- I mean, th- this is, you know, this mission was testing out a, uh, a new kind of halo orbit. So actually, the orbit around the moon is not stable. Um, so to you know to put any anybody you know for any time around the moon actually consumes quite a lot of propellant. Um, so this new orbit uh, is actually you know influenced by Earth's gravitational field and the moon's gravitational field, which which enables you to put uh, a, you know a space station in this halo orbit, uh, and ultimately that 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 ensures you can have some longevity um, and the ability to to go back to the moon easily. But more importantly, it's a stepping stone to to go to Mars and other destinations. So this this whole mission was really to test out um, this uh, you know, this unique orbit between uh, the moon the moon and the Earth uh, to you know to enable obviously return to the moon, but you know to step stone to other planets. Okay, I have two questions now and not enough time, so I have to make a choice. Um, I wanted to sure. talk to you about recycling rockets and uh, a helicopter trying to catch a rocket. And I saw some images of this, which was phenomenal. And then the other thing is that people will yeah. have noticed you're coming from New Zealand as well. And, and I think this is an important point to make as well. So you can answer both of those things as quickly as you can, please. I'm going to get told off for this. Totally. Um, <laughs> so, so, firstly, yeah. so firstly, you know, we're, we're, we're a US company, but I did start the company down in New Zealand. And uh, we have uh, two launch pads down here, so um, so we, we were able to you know launch you know quite a quite a, a significant amount um, down here in New Zealand. And yeah, secondly, we are reusing uh, our launch vehicle, and with a small rocket, it's it's very uh, very difficult to you know to do that um, in a in a normal technique. So um, you know we let nature do its work and and decelerate the rocket, uh, but uh, we put it under a parachute. But we really don't want to get it wet, so um, as you probably saw in the video, we uh, we come in and snatch it, snatch it with a helicopter, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, four hundred nautical miles offshore. <laughs> it's amazing. It is incredible. Um, I have voices in my ear now asking whether uh, is SpaceX because I know obviously you compete with them in rocket making. Is SpaceX mm. size the future of Rocket Lab? Yeah, so we are building a, a, a much larger launch vehicle that will, will be more uh, akin to a, what people are familiar with a um, with a Falcon Nine or, or a SpaceX launch vehicle. Yeah, uh, and it's it's a you know reusable first stage as well. So that 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 vehicle is is due to debut in twenty twenty four. So yep, we we have uh, we've moved up significantly in in the uh, in, in the launch vehicle scale. But also, I think what makes us unique is we build satellites as well, as you can see. Yeah. Uh, we had this mission to the moon. But we've got two other satellites uh, for NASA going to Mars in 2024. We're going to continue this conversation. Great to have you on. Super exciting times. No shortage of enthusiasm on my part. Peter, great to have you with us. Peter Beck there, CEO and founder of Rocket Lab. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, why these little minions are helping drive moviegoers back to the cinema and why fans are dressing up to see it. 
Welcome back to First Move. And the Mighty Minions are back. The latest film in the Despicable Me franchise clocked up $125 million over its four-day opening weekend here in the United States. The biggest ever opening over a July 4th holiday. Frank Pilotta joins us now, Frank. And not only that, people were dressing up in the suits deliberately to go to the cinema in order to watch it. And it caused some excitement. I mean, personally, I think you should always wear a suit to go see any Minions movie. I feel like you should wear a top hat and a monocle and a cane. Um, yeah, there was this uh, TikTok trend called Gentle Minions where people would, like, young men uh, would literally dress up in suits and ties and go see the Minions movie, which is Minions The Rise of Gru. As you said, it made 125 this weekend domestically. That's incredible. Made around $200 million uh, worldwide. It's really great for family films that were kind of like in this weird zone where people were wondering, would families ever come back to the theater after the pandemic? We're still in the middle of the pandemic. But this shows that families are coming back. And that question even got bigger after Pixar's Lightyear kind of bombed earlier this year. It flopped, maybe didn't bomb, but definitely flopped. So let's get back to these gentle minion folks. Did they actually have an impact? Well, some of the uh, demographics show that about 15% were aged 18 to 24. So do I think that wearing uh, that a bunch of uh, teenage men or men in their 20s wearing suits and ties are the reason why Minions broke the 4th of July box office record? Not necessarily. Do I think it helped? It sure didn't hurt. So I think Universal is very happy about it. So uh, I think, hey, any way you can get people to go to the movies, this is the way to do it. It caused some problems, though, didn't it? I mean, the Universal, which obviously is the distribution company, was like, we see you, we love you. They tweeted it out. And yet um, some of these guys, and we've got the videos on TikTok, were pretty disruptive to the point where some UK cinemas were like, we're not going to let you in if you're wearing a suit and you're dressed up because we're worried you're going to cause trouble. Yeah, I think that's kind of silly. It's the movies. Like, let's be quite honest. There has been years and decades. Think about Rocky Horror Picture Show. Think of other, think of any Marvel movie that you've ever gone to. People cheer, people clap. I understand if you're a family and you have kids and you don't want a bunch of like, 20 or 30 men. I'm just thinking, I have this image in my head about 20 and 30, you know, 22 year old men showing up in suits and ties to minions and just going crazier in the film. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is what the theatrical experience is. You're supposed to go and have a good time. (laughs) Obviously, if you're causing a lot of trouble, if you're talking during the movie, then obviously then there's then you're not really should be going. But at the end of the day, if you can get people into the theaters at this time, after this post-pandemic, again, we're in the middle of the pandemic, but what I mean is after the last two years where the theaters have been kind of hit hard, any way to get people in is the way to get people in. So I'm supportive of the Gentle Minions. <laughs> I was about to say, I think they took bananas in, didn't they, to eat? And I think they were throwing them around or something. If you're going to take a banana in there, please eat hey, it's it. It's a great source of potassium. I mean, at the end of the day, all I see is a bunch of young men eating potassium and also at the same time wearing formal wear to the cinema. I, I really don't see the Frank, problem. Frank, were you one here. of them? Were you one of them, Frank? No, I'm too old for that. I mean, at this point, if you talk to me about 10 years ago, maybe, but I think at this point, I think if I showed up in a suit and tie and a banana to a Minions movie, I think, call somebody. Tell somebody I'm in trouble. Tell somebody I need some help. (laughs) Call the parents. Frank, great to have you with us. Thank you. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for Jay Chatterley's CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.